Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Bronfman Fellowship. Do you know a Jewish 11th grader who loves to learn and thinks outside the box? Tell them about the Bronfman Fellowship, a free pluralistic leadership program for Jewish teens. Bronfman Fellows explore the rich tapestry of Jewish ideas while making lifelong friendships with peers from diverse backgrounds. The program begins with an immersive experience in the Berkshires the summer before 11th grade. Applications are currently being accepted, and the deadline is January 5th, 2021. Apply today at bronfman.org. That's B-R-O-N-F-M-A-N dot org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 250. Cosmic Diaspora. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And last week, this week, and next week, we're talking to some folks who have written some really incredible books that have come out relatively recently. And by the way, on the subject of books, if you'll remember our Kickstarter to raise money to produce our book, well, it is in process. It is coming out. It's a little bit delayed from what we hoped because of COVID and all that stuff. But we now have a contract with the publisher. We have the manuscript almost done, and we're hoping it's going to come out really soon. Unfortunately, not in time for Hanukkah, but definitely in time for next year's Hanukkah. And while we're on the topic of Hanukkah, let me mention before we welcome our guests that we are in the midst of our Hanukkah fundraising drive. We're in the middle of what we're calling our Hanukkah Geltraiser campaign, where we're really only asking for $36 from everybody who listens to Judaism Unbound. There are thousands and thousands of people who listen to Judaism Unbound every single week. If every one of those people gave $36, we would have invented a new way of supporting a Jewish organization. If you want to be part of that, please just consider giving $36. You can go to www.geltraiser, that's G-E-L-T, Razer, R-A-I-S-E-R dot com, and you can click through and give $36. If you can give more than that, that is fantastic. But we've been talking a lot about political campaigns lately, and some of these campaigns are raising, you know, an average gift of $42 or whatever it is, and they have thousands and thousands of people that are giving a small amount. We'd like to run a Jewish organization that way, rather than just having to get big, huge grants from foundations or charge people thousands of dollars of dues. We would love it if everybody who listened to this podcast just gave a few dollars. We have a few hundred donors now. What I would be really excited about, let's see if we can make it happen, is that we would have over a thousand donors by the end of this Hanukkah Gelt Raiser. So if you've been listening to Judy Judaism Unbound, if you've been watching Jewish Live stuff, if somehow we have made a difference in your life over the last year, would you consider just giving $36 to our Hanukkah Gout Raiser? We have set up a whole new way now to give monthly giving. So we're actually just asking you to give $3 a month. That would make such a difference. So if everybody listening to this right now would just head over to geltraiser.com, give $36. That would be an amazing step in the direction of inventing a new way to support Jewish life in the digital age. And as a special bonus, for those of you who do give $36 or more, or $3 a month or more, we are having an eight-day Hanukkah party here on Judaism Unbound, where each night of Hanukkah, at different times for different time zones, we are going to be getting together with our community of supporters and... We're going to do various Unbound rituals each night. We're going to experiment. We're going to schmooze. We're going to talk. It's going to be really great. So please consider this one time a year to give to this Gout Raiser $36 or more, $3 a month or more, and we would be enormously grateful and you would have helped us support this organization, continue to go on and do this kind of work in the year ahead, and prove to the world that we can support Jewish life in a new way, which is lots of people giving us small amount of money. Thank you so much for being part of this. And now let's welcome our guest. Today's guest is Jake Marmer. 
He is a poet, performer, and educator who has just come out with a new poetry collection called Cosmic Diaspora. It brings together fantasy, hard-boiled sci-fi, Jewish mysticism, experimental poetics, free jazz, and dark deadpan humor. He has also just come out with a new album of poetry, jazz, klez, avant experiments. It's called Purple Tentacles of Thought and Desire, and it features a number of the poems that appear in the new book with a bass line and a musical accompaniment. It's created by the Cosmic Diaspora Trio, which features Jake, which is a project that brings together experimental poetry, jazz, and klezmer in eclectic, fluid, and improvised manner. Cosmic Diaspora is Jake Marmer's third collection of poetry. The other two are called The Neighbor Out of Sound and Jazz Talmud. And he's also got another album called Hermeneutic Stomp. Jake Marmer is the poetry critic for Tablet Magazine. And he is also the education and programming director of the Bronfman Fellowship. He is a PhD candidate at the City University of New York Graduate Center's Department of Comparative Literature, and his essays have appeared in the Chicago Tribune, Jewish Review of Books, The Forward, and various other publications. We are really excited to take a deep dive into science fiction and Judaism-infused poetry and sound. So, Jake Marmer, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It is so great to have you. Hey. To start, a poem by Jake Marmer entitled Anima. Wasn't the light of the unpronounceable name, wasn't the shadow of another future burning fingers, but the way the craft encircled her body with intimacy so ultimate, it could only be achieved by a machine as it mimicked the splintering emotional carpet she unrolled every time the noise dropped and for eight seconds she was utterly alone and as all space settlers ritualistic about this knowledge you are being disassembled into a diaspora of atoms that know nothing of each other's existence of each other's entanglements before coming together again like water poured into a new glass but without any objective guarantee of continuity Thank you, Jake. That was a perfect way to kick this off. We wanted to give a little bit of a taste of the poetry that we'll be talking about in this episode related to your book. Um, Dan, kick us off with the first question and let's get rolling. Uh, we're really excited to talk about your work, both your poetry and music and also your work in Jewish education. To be honest, I, I'm not sure that I know the right questions to ask about poetry, so I'm really <laughs> looking for a, a fun give and take. I thought that maybe a way to get started on that I do understand is to know a little bit about the story of how you, how one becomes a poet, particularly someone who, as in the beginning of your book, you talk about having grown up on the steps of Ukraine and reading Slavic science fiction and somehow you, you came to the U.S. And it, it's all the more surprising in a way that somebody who is an immigrant would write poetry in the language to which they've immigrated. I've always been amazed by somebody like Joseph Conrad who can write beautiful prose in, in a language that's not his first language. And I'm, and I'm curious about it in particular because I think about how so much of what we're trying to do on this podcast involves people being able to or feeling able to be part of a conversation in Jewish, which in many ways is not a language in which they've grown up. And so I, I think that there's a connection there. And I was just and, and maybe there isn't. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, about your story and, and how one becomes a poet. 
I think writing across languages has always been uh, a, a Jewish project. If you think about major Israeli poets of 60s, 70s, 80s, like for all of them, Hebrew was their like fourth language after German and, and, and Yiddish and Russian and Polish or whatever. I think for many centuries, Jews spoke multiple languages and, and, uh, and recreated themselves across multiple languages. Maybe it is a blessing, you know, for, for a poet to write across languages because, you know, language is kind of a tool. And, and one of the goals of, of poetry, one of the aims, things that a poet is trying to do is to expose the structure of language and all that it contains within it, like the dark subconscious of, uh, of, of a society that, uh, that the language represents. So if you stand a little bit outside of it, you're a little bit less uh, reverent. You can be a little bit more playful with it. Uh, you can mess with it. You can accent it in ways that are, that are a little bit more playful. That's not quite the story. That's, that's more of a, like a commentary to the story, which uh, may, maybe um, is related to your question of like the Jewish language, that, that, um, or what that Jewish language is, uh, a comment. <laughs> I want to mark this for maybe later conversation. It, it was making me think of something that I think Lex and I have discussed a few times on the podcast. I certainly have believed this for a long time. It's a little bit of a hypothesis, uh, you know. Meaning, I'm not. I, I don't know that I've done enough research to really say if this is accurate. But it's my impression that a lot of the early rabbis in the beginning, in the early days of rabbinic Judaism, I actually don't think they spoke Hebrew fluently. And so I think that a lot of their wordplay, a lot of their way of reading the Torah and other sources comes precisely because they weren't, it, it wasn't their first language. And that because they are kind of tripping over words in a certain way, they find something there that people who read fluently just pass right over. So I don't know if that's if, how that lands on you, but, but it may be something that we can talk about. I think punning across multiple languages is a great pleasure and a great art. Yeah, I, 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 that, that makes sense that it's somewhere in the tradition uh, that, far, that far back. And the creative freedom that, you know, some of the earliest rabbis had taken, Midrash and Talmud, it's just so wild how free associative it is, how uh, disconnected from like the actual semantic context sometimes it is. It's just like pure imaginative, free as associative stuff that you see in the traditions, very rich and fun and witty. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. And, and it, it makes a lot of sense to me. It goes all the way back. Yeah, I'm really on that train. People who our Facebook friends of mine will know that a solid, like, I don't know, half of what I post is just me punning for <laughs> kicks because why not? But yeah, I, I do think that there's a deep Jewishness there. And I think, so I think it connects to other elements of what you do with your poetry that I think are worth talking about. So, um, and by the way, for anybody who loves Jewish puns, there's a great Facebook group called Shana Punim, which is <laughs> itself a pun. So that's aye, like aye, aye. beautiful face in mm. Yiddish. Mm. You know, it takes too long to explain. It ruins the joke. But Shana Punim, if you want to get your dosage daily of awesome puns. Um, anywho, back to your poetry. So it's worth talking about puns as a lead in to what I think is a broader truth about your poetry, which is you do a lot with 
capitalization being different and a lot of words that like might be capitalized in the beginnings of your lines are mostly not capitalized but then when there's proper nouns there's capital like you do play with that you play with the visual of the page sometimes stuff is on the right sometimes it's on the left sometimes it's in the middle like there's Mm -hmm. stuff happening there and then in addition to that and this is where i'm most excited the poems are not just the poems you have an entire musical album that encapsulates or riffs on or adds to or is itself a commentary on i don't know whatever those resonates with you um the poetry which is to say the the album goes with the poetry and i gotta tell you i i looked at the poems to start and i struggle in general with poetry it's like very hard for me i'm i'm a prose guy like growing up i went through a phase where i like really didn't i I like actively talked to people and said that like i don't i don't do poetry i don't like poetry because it's too like people don't say what they mean and it bothers me i'm no longer in that place but i do struggle when a poem when its meaning is not totally clear to me i know there's also a beauty there but then the music i opened up your album and you're on there like gregariously joyously sort of with a wink in your eye you can hear it in the music chanting this poetry and it totally brought life to it for me and added many layers and so i'm curious if you can talk about like what's happening there how these how the music and the words are working together from your perspective as the artist the poet the musician all of those and also maybe this opens up a whole conversation about how we have the capability to create art today that like actually would have been impossible even a few generations ago. Like you ca- you couldn't have had a book that came with, you know, a full, I guess you could have a couple generations ago, but let's say a hundred or 200 years ago, you could not have had something like that. W- what are you trying to do with it? A great, great poet, uh, David Anton, um, wrote about the fact that things that seem most avant-garde uh, seem most out there, most well, we couldn't do this even 50 years ago, et cetera. Those things tend to point back to things that are most ancient. What you are talking about is uh, kind of a return to orality uh, for tens of thousands of years before literacy, certainly before the printing presses and before this this idea of a poem uh, as, a, as a written thing that lives on the page only. Right. Uh, but this, there, there is this whole tradition. And, and I appreciate the word chanting that you use because I certainly attempt to perform these poems, not, not just read them in a monotone. And part of the, uh, the pleasure of uh, working together with musicians is uh, conceiving of myself as, you know, an instrument, as somebody who is in, in between the music and the spoken word. There's a great poet, um, Louis Zukovsky, who said, Poetry is an, is an integral of um, lower limit uh, speech, uh, upper limit music. Uh, it's a lovely, lovely definition. I, I don't speak math very well, but uh, uh, that's a terrific definition. And so the poems that you see on the page uh, of my book, Cosmic Diaspora, are often laid out in a way that would lend itself to performance and to improvisation. It's a score in a way. And, and my hope is that it is a score not just for me, performing them, but also for uh, readers and listeners. And something that, um, that I did with this book that I've never done before is uh, 
entering a few QR codes. So some of the pages have QR codes that you can kind of click on and they take you to a video of a gig, uh, a, a performance with my band or a solo reading, or just like a few random videos that I made under my table, my kitchen table, um, which seemed like a great um, science fictional place, uh, maybe the only one in my uh, apartment that, that, that would fit the vibe of the book. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience as a poet in terms of the the audience and how the audience receives poetry, because I I also think that it's like I also think of myself as a prose guy, you know, and and I struggle to read poetry and feel like I'm really doing the right thing. And yet I am a huge devotee of Leonard Cohen, as most people who know me know. And I think that and clearly Leonard Cohen was primarily a poet People talked about him as potentially a Nobel Prize-worthy poet who didn't get it because Bob Dylan got it. But I think that what Leonard Cohen ended up doing, for whatever set of reasons he was doing it, I'm not sure, where he put a lot of his poems to music and created an experience that somebody like me who would say, I'm a prose guy, actually was able to access. And and so I'm wondering, in some ways that feels like the most ancient thing ever, that poetry was always, I think, in its earliest days, sung, and that maybe poetry as not sung is the innovation. But I'm wondering how how you think about some of that as an artist, where there's a, there's a question both of the art that you're trying to make for its own sake, but also that there's an audience there and that the audience accessing it is important. Mm. Great. Well, I think um, what Leonard Cohen tapped into... Um, and and where he was most profound and affecting is is the sense of poetry as ritualistic act, um, and and I think this is what makes or could make poetry uh, relevant still. Um, I also want to just say something um, about both your comment and and uh, Alexis' comment. Of course, like well, I'm a prose guy, and it's very. Uh, uh, I think that's a very normal and very typical uh, uh, comment to make, uh, especially, um, you know, in an American context, uh, I think like different cultures um, place their poets in, in different spaces. Of course, um, wonderful contemporary poet Charles Bernstein said, well, you know, more poetry left for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, I, I, you know, I, it really is, um, there, there, are, there are differences, like there's a reason why, let's say, uh, Israel had put uh, photos of poets on, on shekels, like not presidents, uh, but but poets. You know, there was a project of building up culture with a certain sense of awareness of what um, that entails and what what you need to do that. Um, and the stakes stakes were high. Or like um, great uh, Jewish Soviet poet Osip Mandelstam wrote that the blessing and the curse of being a Soviet poet is that you know, poetry matters so much, you could get killed for it, which is what happened to him, right? Mm-hmm. So it is it is both like the, the curse of it that, uh, you know, it's, it's dangerous, your life is in danger, but it's also that like people listen to it and, and care about it so much that, can you imagine somebody like getting getting hard, like worst thing you're gonna get like a, a pissed off blog post um, in, in, our, in our, uh, I don't know if anybody does that, but, but all, all, all the more <laughs> tweet. so. A tweet, Yeah, tweet, whatever. It, it might even be a blog post still like that, <laughs> uh, like an utter irrelevance, uh, the context in which the critique might take place. 
I want to talk about some specifics of cosmic diaspora for folks listening out there trying to get a better sense of what the content of of your work is. And I'll be transparent with you. And Dan and I were talking about this. Like, it's not an easy book slash work slash album to encapsulate in a sentence or two and be like, ah, yes, the message of cosmic diaspora (laughs) is this. And so I'd love to hear from you, like, to the extent there are, like, messages or particular goals of your work here, what were they? And also, just for people to get a sense who haven't yet cracked open the pages or popped in their earbuds for the music slash poetry, like, what actually is happening page by page of Cosmic Diaspora? You're spot on. There isn't a specific goal that's that's easy to summarize. You know, I've described the book as immigrant sci-fi poems with the shadow of Jewish mysticism or something because I needed that, uh, that like a, a sentence or half sentence to briefly describe it. But I guess the way that I see the work my own work, but also the work of any poet, is to kind of to stand at the intersection of of, of languages, and I don't mean like uh, just like English and Hebrew and Russian and uh, French or whatever. I mean like types of languages, types of discourses, uh, like you know, uh, working in the in a in a Jewish world or being actively Jewish. Like you get you receive one kind of language, but I also live in the Silicon Valley, and there is a, like the language of Silicon Valley is coming at me, um, and and it is in in my mouth, or I find it in my mouth, or I read the news and I find a certain kind of language in my mouth, and I am at the intersection uh, of all of these like streams of language, and I stand on this like street corner and uh and to collect it uh in into a second uh and into a moment to bring it together to to swirl it to play with it that's closer to the purpose it's not about a a a specific genre and then i'm also interested in forms uh and and many poets are in mid-20th century uh, let's say american poetry specifically uh people have abandoned forms like sonnets and you know, ballads at, at these sorts of very specific forms. Um, people started inventing forms or talking about forms as, um, as kind of natural or organic or in some way in, in correspondence with the way that one's mind works or thoughts work. And, and that's really important because you're sort of shaping uh, rhythmically the, the way that you think and the way that you're laying out uh, the, the, these these ideas, and I want to look for four forms. I'm I'm very interested in Jewish forms specifically. My first book was called Jazz Talmud. I was playing with the Talmudic form of of, of discourse and the, the musicality of it, the energies of it. In my second book, I worked with the Nigun as a as a form. So in this particular book, I'm working with the sci-fi as a kind of a a, a form almost a shape uh, or set of, of vocabulary and, and, and ideas that are coming, coming through and, and just like seeing, well, what happens uh, if, if I do that? Can this form push some buttons in me and, and provoke me to say something, to unearth something about the world that I'm inhabiting? My immigration experience, whether it is Jewishness of the 21st century, whether it's some kind of a, a larger story of Jewish migrations since since the beginning of, of of all of our migrations. You know, the book is called Cosmic Diaspora. Um, obviously, like in in a way, I'm I am alluding uh, to that and to the continuousness of that impulse. 
I'm really glad that you said that just now about forms, because that helps me formulate a question from your previous response. Which... Formulate. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh. I hadn't even thought of that. See, I'm a poet and I didn't even know it. Uh, that the um, that when I think of Jewish texts, in particular when I think about the Bible, I think that people mistakenly think that it's prose with occasional poems thrown in like the Song of the Sea or whatever. You know, there's certain things that are in the Bible that are clearly poems or songs, and everybody imagines that the rest of it is prose. I think it's actually something in between, you know, and it, the the where I first started thinking about this was when I read the book Understanding Comics, which is a graphic novel Ooh. length and style book about graphic novels. And it's about the way that a great graphic novelist creates a graphic novel. And basically, one of the parts of it talked about why is it that we find more sketchy kind of uh, comics like The Simpsons? Why do we find those more relatable than comics that are very well drawn? And that and, and he basically explains that it's because of that sketchiness. It's that as soon as something is really well drawn, then it becomes someone else. And it might be an interesting story about someone else, but it's not about me because my own experience of myself is basically two eyes and a mouth. And so a smiley face is actually very relatable because it looks like me. And so I've used that for many years to think about the Bible and to think about some of these stories, particularly like from the book of Genesis, that are these very sketchy stories. They're almost as little as you could possibly say and still convey the basics of the story. And what that strikes me as is it's almost like a poem, but it's something a little bit different. And and that's where it gives the sense that we have a dichotomy between poetry and prose is is problematic because it doesn't help us understand that there's a continuum from, let's say, the most avant-garde poetry to less avant-garde poetry to ultimately song to then these kind of sketchy uh, images from the book of Genesis to then, you know, something more prosy like uh, the story of David in the in the book of Samuel, you know, and then ultimately to like a novel. I'm thinking like what we're trying to grasp at is what is that Jewish, what is that Jewish mythology? What is that stuff that's actually deeper than a novel that somebody wrote and more understandable than avant-garde poetry? And yet it's something really important for us to be able to kind of grasp and create and reimagine. Yeah, I mean, um, in addition to that, that comics book, which sounds great, by the way. It's uh, a great book, yeah. Yeah, it sounds excellent. Uh, th- there's this famous essay by Eric Hauerbach where um, he juxtaposes the story of the Akedah, um, the binding of Isaac, the story from uh, the Bible with Homer and Homer Homeric narrative. And what he says is like... Not Simpsons, since the Simpsons came up, the other Homer. Yes, yeah. thank you. Um mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's true. Um, Simpsons would be more in 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 Auerbach's mapping. It would be more on the on the biblical side. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, so it's it's more sparse. And what he says is it's fraught with background. I, I love that phrase. So because so much is unsaid and unspoken, like he 
goes through the Akeda story, the Binding of Isaac story, and says, like, why doesn't it say anything what Avraham was thinking in that story? Like, he's traveling for three days. What goes on in his mind? Why doesn't it say a word about that? In the meantime, like, in Homer, like, the feast is described in every freaking detail. Like, uh, they're eating uh, this, and uh, they're eating uh, this, and, and there's the sauce, and this god comes, and that god comes. And on his shield, there is a picture of that god. Like, there's abundance of detail and this stuff is not in uh these like really difficult fraud stories and they pull you in and there is a, a sense of porousness um it is created in the way that begs to be interpreted that sucks you in and i think you know good poetry uh is attempting to accomplish something similar to create a sense of porousness of course you can't uh you can't plan it um you can't just like write i'm gonna write something so that people will like fill themselves in so their soul will will just like leap and onto that page and in the in the in those white spaces will position itself this is not something uh one can plan um uh alan ginsburg uh, wrote that uh, you know prophecy is not about saying like on such and such year the bomb will fall on this and that city it's more about just like creating or writing or saying something that in a hundred years somebody will read and suddenly will feel a, a, a deep connection to. Like that is what prophecy is. Very much uh, true for I, I think uh, biblical biblical prophets too. And and so then the question becomes how to get yourself into that state where you can speak uh, in that way, where you can think in that way, where you can create something um, that will have. Um, that potential and that legacy, um, and um, I, I don't, I don't have uh, answers to that, of course. But um, taking risks is part of it. Doing something that you're not sure is right, or you're not sure is working, or um, it, it, is gonna is gonna have an effect. Uh, doing something that you're not sure is even happening. Like, is this? Am, am I doing something that's real, or am I just imagining that I'm doing something? These are some of the things to try, at least, um, to to experiment to allow yourself to be surprised, to relinquish control a little bit. So I'm going to contradict myself, maybe, maybe. I don't Great. know. Um, I said I'm a prose guy. I am a prose guy. Um, uh, and I was talking past tense when I went through my most anti-poetry phase. But um, I do connect to some poetry. And I actually deeply agree with what Dan said about Bible being poetic and poetry and I want to bring up a specific example. And, you know, you just brought up prophets. Um, I want to talk about Jeremiah and specifically not the book of Jeremiah, but actually the book of Lamentations, which mm -hmm. is attributed to Jeremiah. So yeah. I have a bone to pick with everybody who translates the book of Lamentations and everybody who talks about Lamentations. The book of Lamentations, and if you don't know this, it's not your fault because all the translators made you not know this. The book of Lamentations is an acrostic. It is an acrostic poem or at least an acrostic work. Um, I think it's an acrostic poem. And here's why. There's five chapters in the book of Lamentations. The first, the second, and the fourth are all 22 verse acrostics from Aleph to Tav, basically from A to Z, Hebrew style. And then the third chapter is actually three acrostics in one. It's three of Aleph, then three of Beth, then all the way three of Tav. And then the last chapter, the fifth chapter, it sort of takes a break. It's still 22 verses, so it's still sort of a similar rhythm, but it's not an acrostic. So you've got six 22s, six A to Zs, Aleph to Tavs in the first four chapters, and then one Shabbat, one break, 
that's 22 verses, but not an acrostic. So my belief is that the specific content of the words in Lamentations is not the point. It's not the point. We, we, we talk so much about, ah, there's this word chosen for this reason. There's this word. And like, I actually put myself through an exercise because I wanted to make my own aspirational translation of Lamentations. And I didn't look at what the actual words said at all. All I did was I said, I'm going to write an acrostic and I'm going to pick basically the first word that comes to mind for each letter of the alphabet. And <laughs> not the first, but like, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm not going to overthink it because that's how I think they wrote this. I think the point of this poem was the book of Lamentations is really sad. It's in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple, the first temple. It's meant to be, this is really terrible. There's a lot of terrible things happening. Every form of our society is collapsing. And the specific words were chosen so that, ah, well, oh, it's the start of the chapter, so I have to pick an Aleph word. I guess I'll go with whatever phrase fits the Aleph phrase, and then Bet and then Gimel. And I don't think they were that thoughtless about it, but I think in our quest as, you know, rabbinic Jews who want to find every last kernel of meaning in the specific word and the specific letter, we lose the fact that, oh, sit with terrible catastrophe for a bunch of chapters from A to Z, literally, from Aleph to Tav, and do it seven times, which is the, the you know, biblical code word for sort of a complete cycle. When you have seven of something, that's yeah. like you've gone through a complete thing. That's why there's seven days in a week and yep, seven yep. years in a cycle. Like this is the message. And then we, we chant this book and we get so bogged down and ah, this verse says this. So I guess I'd love to hear from you, like, could we be pushed in that direction? Could we not play this game where I, I think about it sometimes as if the the mnemonic device every good boy deserves fudge in music which teaches you that the e g b d and f are the lines on the treble clef like it's as if as jews we were to look at every good boy deserves fudge and said ah the reason we chose that is because there's a deep relationship between the properties of fudge and and how we go about the f in the scale in the like mm. we chose every good boy deserves fudge because that's the letters that makes a phrase that helps us remember the, oh yeah that's the notes on the scale so that was a rant it's not really a question but like how could we maybe apply the teachings of your book at least to me an implicit teaching which is it's not about ah this precise word it's sometimes about the mood you set it's sometimes about the the overarching tone that you set with the music like what can we learn from this and apply jewishly i just want to point out to our earlier uh conversation about forms like the rant the and that we just <laughs> witnessed and had the pleasure of witnessing like this was uh this is a very jewish form of discourse i think a very poetic yes. form um and, and 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 great like this is where uh, the cultural mythic forms come from and how they manifest themselves so there you are and i think uh another form or its manifestation maybe is like not only are you lamenting you like lamenting alphabetically like there's some kind of like Right. A really interesting cultural um, oddity there, uh, and and maybe you could say like, okay, well, um, in in the time of destruction, like the alphabet is holding down the structure, holding down like, um, you know, the the thing that's that we know is solid, which is the alphabet, and of course, uh, Jews, especially ancient Jews, always held language as the sacred center of of, of everything of of experience. Um, but also, like uh, continuing in, in in a journey of exploring Jewish forms, uh, is the counter rant, perhaps? Uh, Great. 
<laughs> or a beginning of one where I, I would say, well, you know, uh, you're right, of course, to look at the form and say, well, um, maybe form here is more meaningful uh, and, and is conveying a larger sense of experience that's, that's in there in, the, in that text. But I would also push back and say, I think every word is, um, is meaningful uh, ultimately because each word in, in this sort of a text contains infinity of, of meanings. This is the way that I read poets I love. I don't think they necessarily meant every single word to be there and they, they meant every um, meaning that I see but that's, you know, that, that goes back to what I was saying about text being porous and, and uh, text being created so as to be interpreted. Um, in, in a way, you become, um, if, if you're a poet, you become an interpreter of, of, of your own text, the reader of your own text the minute the poem uh, is, is finished. First of all, I just want to insert that in my generation, it was every good boy does fine, not every good boy deserves fudge. <laughs> oh, and yes. I wonder, After Reem, um, Reem, others say every good boy does fine. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder about that in the context of this conversation because, uh, you know, I don't know if one or the other gets uh, remembered and becomes the one. I mean, it's funny when you said every good boy deserves fudge, I had this feeling of like, that's not what it is, you know, like that, that, um, you know, and there was some sense that, okay, we're going to have a cultural, uh, you know, push me, pull you about this. And, and eventually uh, one of them will prevail or maybe it already has. But in any event, like I, I was thinking about Jake, what you were saying about prophecy, if I understood it, it was like the prophecy is determined a hundred years later by the stuff that remains, you know, the things that, that people look back and they say, it turned out, uh, that that was prophetic. It, it's sort of confirmation of that idea that there is, you know, no man is a prophet in his own city or mm. no no one is a prophet in their own time, that almost by definition, that's not what prophecy is. But I mean, I, I think the way that I think about that question of the acrostic, I wonder whether it's both the form. I mean, I actually didn't know that or hadn't, I knew it a little bit about Lamentations, that it was an acrostic, or that at least some of it was an acrostic. I didn't know that there were seven and that the whole thing was an acrostic. So I, I appreciated it all the, the more. Because the mainstream media, no, just kidding. Yeah, the they mainstream media. told the, you. Yeah. But, no, I appreciated it all the more knowing that. And I fundamentally believe that the that probably every word does matter, because I kind of feel if Jake took that form, he would take the form and he would make sure that every word mattered. And so, Jake, I, I'm wondering if you could help us understand that a little bit more in terms of both how you work as a poet, but also I think that we've been talking on this show about Judaism as an art form, that that Judaism as a material of art, like I think people misunderstand Judaism. They think Judaism is a great Renaissance painting that we should only go and appreciate and and maybe we should learn to sketch it so that we can get as close to the the perfect painting as we possibly can, as opposed to understanding Judaism as a lump of clay or a palette full of paints. And in every generation, the point is that you take the material, maybe you take a certain form, but you take the material and you create your own art using that material. What gives it continuity is that it's made out of the same material, not that it has exactly the same look as it did in prior generations. And so I, I'm wondering both in terms of how you think about that with actual art that you do, and then also as a Jewish educator and as a Jewish thinker, you know, how do you think about, and, and by the way, and somebody that I know has enlisted other artists in your work in Jewish education, thinking about what do you think is, is a way in which we might take those learnings from art and apply them to Jewish futurism? 
So we, we were talking about mnemonics and forms, and I, I thought I'd, I'd share a piece from Cosmic Diaspora. It's called mnemonics, and the form that it is exploring is the form of uh, Hebrew alphabet and, and is playing with that form. So I'm, 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 I'm going to read it, if that's okay. The most okay. Aleph is for alien. Bet for the great. Alternatives to alienation. What are they? Vet for the inevitable, alienation from self, from Marx, Gimmels for the game plan, breathe, don't alienate other aliens. Dalet, face it, you got dealt ancestral language you don't even speak. Hey, for hail, locus, darkness, vav, is poet David Meltzer's void angel vav, flee in my heart. Zion and rules of creation, het, Pull it over your big alien ears. Tet, taking alien to bed. Your comma in the sky, cuff, the cup of alienation. Runneth over, look out, lamed for lame, for alien, fur. Mammoth, middle march. It's a good book. Noon is <laughs> dawn of alien, samech, same, ugh, iron. For all you got, your myopic cyclops alien eyes on. Pay, peyote, toothbrush, tzadi, whichever side you're on, a thorn in. Cough is for cough. All aliens got it. Rage for head rush. Brain freeze. Dead giveaways of an alien. Shin is for wake up kick. Tav for the vat of dreck and pride. May we all rise from it. First time snaps on an episode of the Judaism Unbound podcast. Mm. Thrilled to have that. Thank you, Jake. You know, I, I guess what I what I want to say is that this Jewish art thing is it, it's not a, a set of specific characteristics. You can't quite like boil it down to seven or eight things to say like, what is Jewish culture? Or what is Jewish art? Um, it is more, I think, of a frame um, that you bring to a, an experience. Like I don't set out to create Jewish art. Uh, that's not my goal. I'm, I'm writing poems uh, and, and I am fully in the experience of writing poems. I, the less of a goal I have in that, the better it is for, for my uh, poetry. And I think this is true for other artists as well. Uh, you can bring a frame to, let's say, your readings of Kafka and, and talk about like, well, here's a writer who did not mention Jewishness at all in his works. But yet, if you bring that frame and you start looking and you say well, like, oh, well, you know, Josephine and the Mouse Folk story, like this is about the, the little shtetl kind of a, a Jew culture that he's, he's riffing on. And, and, uh, and of course, Art Spiegelman, um, you know, he, he wrote his mouse, uh, as, as he uh, told me, he was inspired by that very story. So you bring that frame, um, all of a sudden, you're in a space of Jewish art and, and uh, commentary on, on the Jewish experience that's profound. Or let's say the works of Joy Layden, who you had uh, on your show, not necessarily every single poem or, or, or bit of writing is addressing directly the, the Jewish experience. But, um, you know, with the frame of her memoir being called The Jewish Journey Between Genders, all, all of a sudden you are in, in, in a space where you are dealing uh, with the Jewish experience. I mean, like, what if you have a very thoughtful young Jewish dancer who is dancing in a nutcracker performance, let's say. So then Nutcracker, Jewish? No, of course not. But then, what what is the experience of a of a Jewish dancer uh, 
like? And, and then you, you start asking that questions, that, that set of questions, and you're looking through that frame, um, and all, all, of, all of a sudden, it becomes like a profound Jewish artistic experience. I also want to ask like about, you know, you have this side hustle as a Jewish educator, you know, as a, <laughs> as, as somebody who's running a, a Jewish leadership program or the education part of it. And I'm wondering, though, about that in particular, that you've you've written some articles about how you had to pivot when COVID came. And, you know, this particular program, the Bronfen Fellowship, was supposed to be one that has a big chunk of it in Israel and you ended up doing it on Zoom. And you talk about, and, and I think that my, and I, and I think that the theory that I'm floating a little bit is that artists are those that we should be looking to, not the question of whether their art is also Jewish art. It's, it's about enlisting artists in the process of reimagining Judaism in a time like this when we're dealt with, uh, the, with COVID. But but also in this time that we live in more generally, when we're looking at what B'nai Lappi calls the crash of rabbinic Judaism, and that a lot of people are troubled by, you know, a lot of people are freaked out. Like, what do you mean it's it's going to be ending? And I, I sort of, I tell the story a lot. I, I sort of like imagine this uh, uh, early rabbi coming into the <laughs> temple, you know, right before it was destroyed and saying, I've got this idea for a new kind of Judaism, you know, and they, they end up just describing the kind of Judaism that we all have. And they're basically laughed out of the temple because it's like so crazy, you know, and I just sort of wonder whether when you had to face a situation where the program in which you're working, not so much as an artist, but as an educator has to change suddenly, that somehow you're in a better position to be able to do that because, you know, you do this art on, uh, outside of it and it's like, okay, yeah, so that's it. It's just a new form. And so we just have to try to rearrange the material for, in this new form. I know you jokingly said the site ha uh, hassle, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it is, uh, in, in a way it is and it isn't because it's, um, I, I see uh, education as as very much intertwined uh, with, you know, my identity as as an artist. Um, but you know, with with art, uh, first of all, you have uh, you know something that, that that we call in in the Jewish world we call it lishma, uh, and and uh, that's a, a really important word. Uh, doing something not for ulterior motive, but for a higher purpose, for its own sake. That that's very true of art, and I think it's also true of uh, Jewish education. That's that's worth uh, its salt when when you are in the space um, of engaging with it because you're taking great pleasure from the ideas and and and, and the thinking together with others. You are in a um, you know what, what we talked about is like this ritual experience of learning and thinking and being together. The pleasure of the conversation. It's very similar whether you're reading. Uh, poetry or, sh or sharing uh, artistic work, or you are delving into these classic Jewish texts. Um, when I think about uh, Jewish educators that uh, I love the most, um, who um, have been most profoundly uh, affected by, they've all had kind of a, a performative edge to them. In other words, they don't don't set out to be performers, uh, but there is, there is something to it. Like somebody like, let's say, Aviva Zornberg, who I uh, admire so much. And um, I think she would resist uh, the idea of, of, of performance. But anybody who's been uh, to her lecture, certainly I have experienced something like, 
almost like trance-like um, state um, of being in the presence of her thinking and and conveying teachings. That's that's not just like the matter of conveying information. Uh, again, this this word ritual is 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 coming to mind. This is like the ritual of teaching and learning. And and I think she is embodying uh, teachers of the past. She's embodying the tradition thinking out loud publicly, she's also bringing uh, the wealth of scholarship to that moment. Um, so she's not quite a performer or, or, or an, an artist um, programmatically, but it just happens that way because the roots of art and performance go to that very same place. And coming long way um, back to, uh, to your question of what artists could bring to specifically this moment, this the moment of crash, is is I think something like uh, playful irreverence and also a sense of sacred. I love this thread of applying this to Jewish education and to our Jewish future. You know, that's what we love to do here. But um, mm-hmm. I I read an article that you wrote mm-hmm. as part of your side hustle, Jewish education endeavors. <laughs> um, and I loved it. Um, and you talked about something we talk about a lot, which is the whole question of like adapting things from, I'm going to say in quotes, in person to online. I say in quotes because I actually think online can potentially be a kind of in person, just in a different sense. So I want to talk about that because you you set up a, a framework I think is really helpful, which is you said it's it's not that we're like looking at in-person and trying to take all the pieces that happen in an in-person kind of program and see, ah, what's the closest we can get to that in Zoom? That process is doomed because from the start, you're, you're, you're doing an act of replication that can't actually replicate. I'll put the link to this article in the show notes for mm-hmm. folks who want to read. Um, I love that. And I've been playing around lately with, I think that we really need to investigate this because that's how most Jewish digital programming is still happening. People are still starting from the place of, okay, this is what it's used to look like. This is what it's generally looked like offline on the ground. How do we get close to that? And so I guess I'd love to hear more from you on that article. Like, what have you learned in migrating some of your work to this digital context? Following with Dan's, like, to what extent do you feel that that's sort of drawing from your own experience as an artist? And just sort of more broadly, how should we maybe be thinking about this new digital context for Jewish education, for Jewish art in new ways? Great. I guess I would say that I have gotten a sense of a broader and more complex self that isn't just the real life, quote unquote, uh, self, but self that exists in multiple places and across different mediums all at once. Uh, and this is the strange thing about it. This is almost like a mystical thing about it. But if you, if you really just like deconstruct the moment, uh, like the moment that we're in right now, you, uh, Lex and, and, and Dan and I, we're all in our, um, in our homes, but also in this strange space that we're certainly together in virtually and on each other's screens and also elsewhere, like we're existing in multiple places um, or the traces of us exist in multiple places at the same time. And we can interact across these multiple places, in other words. And there's this just uh, a, a, a sense of um, even stranger kind of a, a self 
that is spread across uh, uh, different mediums. And, and I think uh, that ha has been true for quite a while, but it took, I think, a pandemic to really drive this home, just how, um, how strange it is and, and how sci-fi it is, um, you know, back to, uh, back to sci-fi uh, there for a second. But I, I think that's uh, absolutely worth uh, investigating. And I think as, as we pivot and, and we are exploring this, this space that we're in, what's necessary is, um, is just uh, bringing all of, all, all of what you got, um, all, of, all of the things that you know and love that work and, and being prepared to improvise and, and um, to interrogate the medium also, just like to question, like, what do we find about ourselves and who we are? Because we're defamiliarized, we're in this new kind of a space and it's because we're disoriented, some real stuff that's normally buried under like the discourse and forms and repetitions of everything everybody else said, suddenly you're so disoriented. You might actually say something real or you <laughs> might experience something real in this strange place. And this is, uh, you know, an opportunity um, to, to improvise and open up. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm like, um, I'm glad about it. Maybe a little bit, but at, at this, I, I would still just prefer to be in person, uh, I think, um, and <laughs> not just because um, I'm, I'm more used to it. Um, but I, but I appreciate, uh, I, I appreciate uh, what I can discover, um, and and I think we probably will, you know, decades later, just look back and say, well, this was a a, a pivotal moment when so many things changed and and. We didn't quite go back to the same place, but to just a more hybrid uh, state of, of who we are that, that we have come to recognize. Yeah, you know, when you said the word discover, I, it got me thinking about a little bit about this series that we have coming up on the podcast on philanthropy. Mm. And I was thinking about the landscape of what philanthropists tend to fund and how they think about it and that... And, and I'm just thinking about how art fits into that, because I have an impulse that it's not just this isn't just a dig at philanthropists. I think that <laughs> in general, in the Jewish community, I don't think that we are thinking about art and art's value. And it feels to me like one of the places where art is so valuable that what you just said helps me wrap my mind around a little bit is like these are our explorers, like these are the people who are going out and just like exploring things. I actually think in some way to think about COVID as having created a little bit of an enforced artistic experience on all of us is kind of an interesting way to think about it. That now not all of us have risen to the occasion and maybe <laughs> some of us have not been as artistic as we might have been, but at least all of us were kind of, we, we weren't, we're not really able to just kind of hang back and do what we've always done. That that sort of wasn't an option. And so it, I, I wonder, as we reflect on what a lot of us have been doing over the last eight or nine months, whether that could potentially give us an appreciation for what artists do all the time, even in times of not crisis, that are potentially preparing us for a crisis. And I'm sure the answer will be no, as soon as COVID is over, everybody's going to go back to what they were doing. And But I just wonder whether there's some way that right now we could capture some way of, of and I and, and and I think it's fraught because on the one hand, we don't want to talk about art as a means to an end. I totally agree about this idea of what you called lishma, like art for its own sake. And yet to fail to see artists who may not be doing it intentionally for this reason, but who nevertheless 
are out there exploring the possibilities. And, you know, some of them are the ones that are going to be looked on in 100 years. And and like you say, people will say, yeah, that was the one. But if we don't support the endeavor at all, then the odds are higher that the one that would have been looked on 100 years later as the one will, will never happen. It'll be stillborn. It'll, you know, and, and that's that's what in some ways gives me the most worry about the future and not just the Jewish future. I'm also thinking about the future of America. And so I think at the end of the day, what I'm asking you to reflect on a little, uh, maybe if you want to, is this question of whether it's Jewish philanthropists or Jewish organizations or some other element within the Jewish community could do a better job at nurturing a world in which artists, well, and and (laughs) how, right? And nurturing, like, what would it look like to have a world in which people that really are doing this kind of art on the cutting edge of what it means to be Jewish could actually do that work. Yeah, thank you. I, I want to emphatically, you know, respond to this, uh, to this, this, this excellent question. I, I think um, what's going to matter to uh, communities and, and, um, and, and you can certainly say it's, it's a certain kind of education that matters. It's a certain, a set of lectures, uh, a specific set of initiatives, but uh, Shelley wrote famously that poet is the unrecognized legislator of the world. You know, uh, artists have this task of of creating uh, a culture that that we're a part of, of creating a space in which we can see ourselves and discover ourselves and contemplate who we are um, and, and what we do and why and how it connects to our heritage, uh, to the stories we've received, the stories that we're dealing with, to the big questions um, that, that we're, we're facing. Creating that culture and, and a rich culture, a, a culture in which you can, you can have um, a sense of transcendence and a sense of purpose uh, that's broad and is serious and committed uh, and ethical and empathetic and all of that, you, you, need, you need culture to back it up. Um, and 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 there's so much uh, in in the tradition, Jewish tradition, these great and really important stories, and also modes of thinking, of interacting with others, and and these things need to be unearthed and discovered. And and to me, the space where they they're going to come from is of course art, and not just poetry, but also visual art and theater, of course, and film. Uh, all, all of these things, if they exist, then then we are in conversation with. The ancient tradition, we are in conversation with with who we are profoundly. And and of course, uh, I I think these things need to be uh, funded. I think every serious Jewish educational space should have artists in residence. Like every shul that wants to matter should have artists in residence uh, creating and and teaching there side by side uh, with with everything else because um, people need something profound to come together around. I'm not a big davener myself. I, um, it, it, I'm, I don't feel particularly moved or affected by it. Um, and I know a lot of people like me um, who want to come together around uh, a, a sacred experience, but don't necessarily want that experience to be centered around prayer. Um, want other kinds of texts or other kinds of sacred experience and art uh, especially art that is, um, you know, serious and complicated and challenging and difficult. You know, it, it can certainly push you towards that place and create an opportunity for people to come together in that uh, particular way. 
being in the in the Jewish world, I, I think um, part of my my work is, is is bringing that thinking to Jewish educational world and trying to build uh, artistic experience and initiatives and working with artists into kind of broader educational discourse because I think it, it will be nourishing to just any any kind of serious learning and thinking and and being together. Uh, art is incredibly potent in building communities uh, and people getting to know each other in a, in a deeper, profound way. Thank you so much. All we've done today is talk about mathematical integrals, lamentations, Kafka, Jewish philanthropy, the digital world, and art. So I, we barely touched on anything. So, But no, <laughs> this was amazing. Thank you so much, Jake Marmer, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. And before we go out with any uh, calls to contact us, we want to play you out with some of Jake's poetry and music. So here he is. Some call it theological equivalent of money laundering. I take issue with that. Gravity, Gravity is contagious. And as a member of clergy, I am entitled to. It's like parking anywhere. Parking. The green shape pulsates with its scraped horizons. Circularity of obsession. I'm standing alone with the tightest optical strain known to man. And you want me to. Bless your... What? Remember when Jake said that he liked to be playful? Hope you caught that in that incredible track. Um, thank you, Jake Marmer, for joining us. Thank you, all of you out there, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to encourage you to be in touch with us. We love it at any of the following uh, possible contact avenues. And uh, here they are. So there's Facebook. Judaism Unbound is our Facebook page. There's Instagram and Twitter, also Judaism Unbound. There's our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And there are our email addresses, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you can send our way. And you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate or this time of year by joining our Geltraiser at geltraiser.com, our amazing Hanukkah program that you can come to with a donation just of $36 or a $3 monthly recurring gift. So thank you so much for listening. With that, this has been Judaism Unbound.